Hello, welcome to Wild in Theology. My name is Will, and this is my co-host. Hi, I'm Kaylee. (laughs) Today, we are going to be talking to James W. Gesso. Uh, He is an author and public educator whose work focuses on the topic of psychedelics. He has published two books on the healing power of psilocybin mushrooms, Decomposing the Shadow and The True Light of Darkness. He's also the host of the popular podcast, Adventures Through the Mind. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at James W. Gesso, J-E-S-S-O, and at jameswgesso.com. So this was a a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, Very knowledgeable guy, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. we would ask him a question, he would just, like, go on. And, like, it was all interesting, but it was just like, oh, my God, like, there's so much information here, you know? Yes. Yeah. But... Before we actually get into the interview, we wanted to define the shadow because this is kind of like the overarching theme of the podcast. So for those who don't know, the shadow is basically the rejected elements of self. When you have a certain part, when you, when you reject a certain element of yourself, what happens is that you'll begin to project that element out into reality, mm-hmm. right? And so for an example of this um, is from our podcast episode, Ubuntu, Stage Purple Integration, where I had realized that I had, where I had essentially grown up is kind of like the fat kid, like not very athletic, chosen last in sports, always going to be overweight, right? And during my my introduction to self-improvement, becoming physically fit was kind of the first thing that happened. And so I rejected the overweight elements of myself and said, no, 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 that's not me. And I needed to do that. But by rejecting these elements of myself and creating a sort of hostility toward those elements of myself, I rejected them into my shadow And how this actually manifested my life is that I began to reject my family because they weren't physically fit and started saying like, oh, you know, projecting these qualities onto them that weren't necessarily true, but were true about what I was trying to avoid in myself, right? And so that's really how the shadow manifests is that we reject these elements of ourselves that we consider bad or negative in some way. And then we start identifying it in other people, when in reality, it could be in those people for sure. But when we direct our attention and our consciousness back on ourselves, we find that these are elements of ourselves that we've rejected and they are causing issues in our lives. And for for myself and my family, I had started to push my family away without even realizing it, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, for sure. And I definitely don't even see it as limited to projection. Like Mm -hmm. the shadow for me is just like all of the unconscious parts of ourselves, of our personality that we've rejected, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously, Mm -hmm. but either way, they still show up in our lives, whether we're conscious of them or not. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like, you know, having, um, again, a rejected you know, fat self, so to speak. Yeah. It's like, um, it creates an unhealthy relationship with food or with exercise where it's like, if I ate something, 
unhealthy. Like if I, if I binged on McDonald's, for example, I'd have to like go for an hour bike or an hour and a half bike to feel better about myself and be like, oh, I'm burning these calories I've just eaten. Mm -hmm. And that's not healthy. That's, that's not a healthy relationship with yourself. But by bringing my consciousness back to this element of myself and like giving love to this hypothetical mental image of fat will, I was able to develop a better relationship with food and exercise. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that is the shadow. And what we're going to talk about today with James is basically how to use psychedelics to heal the shadow, not only individually, but also uh, in relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Wild in Theology. We're happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to meet you. Um, we both just read your books. Will read Decomposing the Shadow, and I read The True Light of Darkness. So it's cool to talk to you after hearing about your experiences. Oh, yeah, great. My experiences of, of quite some time ago. Yeah, yeah, I guess this was quite a while ago. But um, as we were reading these, we were trying to find like a unifying theme to help guide the conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, in Decomposing the Shadow, you obviously talk a lot about facing and healing one's own shadow. Mm -hmm. um, but then in The True Light of Darkness, you talked about a specific insight that you received from one of your trips um, in the period of time where you were s exclusively tripping solo in your um, full moon ritual type things. And the insight was that you should share this experience and grow alongside others on a similar path. So we thought it would be an interesting conversation theme to talk about the difference and the benefits that one gets from doing solo experiences versus tripping with other people and healing the individual shadow and the collective shadow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, I one of the things that after writing Decomposing the Shadow, I realized was it's a huge limitation, you know, um, I don't know if blind spot is now considered an ableist term, but like a, a big blind spot in the, in the, in the book is that it was really me focused. I don't necessarily say, mean like me, myself, James, but like the self, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very evident of where I was at in that time in my life and what the process I was under that gave rise to those ideas, um, was all about. Mm -hmm. And, it was actually a, a friend of mine who had said like, you know, you t there's so much in decomposing the shadow. And yet at no point do you talk about how important it is to like how relationships with other people are important. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he said that, I was like, duh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that doesn't specifically speak to what you're talking about with those two different themes, but it is sort of evident. And, and I think it's important for a lot of people, we need to go through this sort of like deep, especially in early 20s, you're either, I feel like my experience of early 20s and the experience I've had with others who have been early 20s that are now my age or in it now, it seems like it's a very sort of discovering oneself kind of time in mm -hmm. your life, right. right? And that can either come out as being very sort of self-reflective and sort of like self sort of building or it can come out as being sort of externally oriented, usually through criticisms and expectations or mm. assumptions that, uh, that, that the me knows what's best for everyone and everything else. Um, 
and <laughs> guilty of both, <laughs> yeah, especially absolutely. at that time of my life. And, and I mean, ranging from time to time as well, because, you know, like we are always every age we've ever been. Um, just ideally, as we get older, we uh, occupy the adulting role <laughs> more often than not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's something there. And when I think about the difference between doing deep solo work and more sort of connection work, I mean, connection in the sense that there are other people in the room. And I mean, there's all sorts of different configurations and styles, right? But let's just say the difference being a journey where it's about me and me going into what's up for me alone and a journey where you're with others and it's about being with others rather than say being with others and about the self structured around some sort of ceremonial ritual like ayahuasca experiences. My experiences with the Shipibo style and Mestizo style ayahuasca is you're having your own experience right. in a group held by a larger container. So if we were to break it down between the differences of just like about the self, the self solo journey and about the connection collective journey, then uh, there's a lot of profound value as represented in decomposing the shadow for a lot of deep inner self-reflection, healing, learning, um, insight, you know, reverie, and the impacts of that all that can offer a person about who we are. But of course, mm -hmm. in that is about how we show up in relationships, right? It is facing what is happening within. And then that can extend out into how we show up in the world. If I better understand myself and how I came to be and why I do the things that I do and what the impact has been and how I feel about those things and how I evade feeling the impact of the things that I did that I don't think are good, you know, <laughs> like, if I have a better sense of that, I can operate in relationship. Yeah. I can show up in the world differently. There's benefit there. Not to mention the, you know, the possible benefit of going through processes of, you know, healing and forgiveness and compassion and surrender and, and love for myself, for other people, for the people who have been my perpetrators, the people who I have been their perpetrator, whatever it is, you know, like that sort of like all those dynamics, being able to go through that sort of, um, it, uh, uh, what is it going through the process of going in and healing stuff and healing conflict with the self or with others, right? Mm -hmm. That can be profoundly beneficial to the self. Okay. In relationship and in just how we show up in the world. Right? So in regards to being in connection with others, then something akin to what's happening within the self can now happen in the, in the intersubjective we space of multiple people in the room. As the normal operational functions of one's ego disintegrate under the effect of psilocybin, collectively, there's a disintegration of how we would normally hold ourselves with others, how we would hold ourselves back from others how we would hold others back from ourselves and the type of revealing that can happen sort of behind closed eyes and underneath the headphones of a, of a personal journey can now come interpersonally into a space. And in that space, there's also opportunities for interaction, like not just verbal interaction. In fact, probably not much verbal interaction because mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you tried to have a really rigorous conversation while high on a big dose of mushrooms, but it's not very easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and then so 
you can have these nonverbal interactions. You can have these incredible moments that are just profoundly alive in the body and different and strange and sometimes like very strange and exciting and novel. But not all of that, there can be deep revealing and deep bonding in a way that wouldn't be there perhaps otherwise. And I think there's a lot of value there, especially communities connecting together and especially communities connecting together on psilocybin with the expressed intention of, say, connecting with each other or collectively connecting with something deeper of a sort of more fundamental ground of being, be it just the sense of connection or being something more mystically oriented or even something explicitly religiously oriented. Um, And then one of the other things that's a benefit from in doing it in a group is that for so I, I, I have no idea if what I'm about to say is scientifically verifiable. Okay, so <laughs> okay. I'm just going to go off. I think some of it might be. Um, that when we remember things, you know, that our memories are, our memories can be changed over time. We don't necessarily remember actually what happened. And even if we remember accurately what happened to us, in our experience, we, that doesn't necessarily mean we have an accurate memory of what was happening in the whole picture or for other people. And that, so our memories can change over time. And oftentimes our memories get sort of located in the places in which it, it unfolded. So we end up, I think, storing memories in places, or at the very least, our brain logs and registers events and the memories of the events by stimuli that is present in the environment, mm-hmm. such as, say, smells. Obviously, smells and memory are that scientifically ver- verified. They're tightly interlinked. But I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you go to a place you haven't been in a really long time, and all of a sudden, you start remembering stuff that happened there that you otherwise wouldn't have remembered. For really? yeah. yeah, For my experience, living away from where I live now in Kitchener for a very long time, I, when I came back and started living here again, which is where I grew up, I started remembering things about my childhood, remembering things about my adolescence, remembering things about my coming of age, which is still unfolding. And I assume it will be up until I end up playing the elder function for somebody half or you know, a third my age at some point in the future um, that I wouldn't have otherwise remembered. So memories can be stored in places, but memories can also be stored by other people. You know, mm-hmm. so I, if we share an experience, I can remember a lot about that experience. You could remember a lot about that experience, about what happened to me, about what happened to yourself, things that I wouldn't necessarily remember. And now when we're together, we're able to reminisce, we're able to reconnect, we're able to, you know, collaboratively and co-creatively reimmerse ourselves in the impact, in the experience by reconnecting with the impact of that experience as it is expressed in our collective remembering and reminiscing. And so that has a value, say, in integration, but it also has a value that mushroom experiences can be beautiful, but they can also be very difficult. And knowing that there's another person that knows what that was for you, that you've been that you've been there, that you went through that, that you had the courage to do it even multiple times, and vice versa. Knowing that within community, there's a type of bond, there's a type of connection, there's a type of capacity after that for what happened in the journey to really play out in how you're seen in your community. 
in mm. the people around you. And of course, how we are seen is often as, as much who we are as who we think we are. I know a lot of us have a sense of understandably so, like I am who I am and it doesn't matter what other people think of me. That's true, you know? But on another end, who you are is incredibly tied to how other people see you. And, I, and there's probably a lot of times where other people have a better sense of who you are than, than you're willing to accept, right? And especially, especially if you feel guilt and shame about things or, you know, strong assertion that, that whatever your behaviors were, were appropriate or whatever it might be. Um, and so when you share something like that in a group, there's this possibility for people to see you as being someone who went through that. And so it's more, it's easier for you to step into that. Now, of course, like what is learned, you're able to better learn the lesson because the lesson is sort of held collectively and your learning is held by the awareness and the perception of the people around you who know you and care about you. This is all assuming that this is mostly responsible, mostly positive, mostly mature usage, okay? We could talk about how things could go awry in less than structured, less than sort of mature, responsible usage. Mm -hmm. um, but I think anyone listening that has any sense of psychedelics or drugs can probably just immediately assume what that is. Um, so we don't have to belabor on that too long. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so there's there's something to that. Something about, was it Francois, Francoise Berzat? She had said something in her book about having somebody to welcome you back and i since then i've found that to be incredibly valuable um having somebody to welcome you back having somebody who knows that you've set off somewhere knows that you'll be returning and mm. then doing in a group you know you all know where you've set off you all have a sense of having shared that you can all step forward into the rest of your lives together or apart knowing that of each other for better or worse so yeah, I think that's that's probably a start, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. There's a lot that came up there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, one of the things that came up for me was where you started talking about how, like, you know, in your early 20s, you're kind of focused on developing your individuality, I suppose. Um, and have you heard of um, Suzanne Cook-Reuter's model of ego development? No. Okay. It, it's basically... Um, she calls it uh, the nine levels of increasing embrace, where essentially you kind of go through these stages like um, they scare me right now, but like symbiosis essentially, and then like conformist uh, and then achiever. And at achiever, you've basically differentiated yourself and become like a very individualistic person where you, you have created this container around yourself that's so um robust that you kind of don't see other people's views anymore and an example of this would be like um in you know you, you have some like kind of youtube self-development gurus who'd be like you know if you don't want to be the best you're you know you're like a bitch or like there's something wrong with you or something like this and like if you would have to be the best and they may want you to be the best but they couldn't understand how anybody wouldn't want to be the best at whatever their metrics are, or they could only see the best through their lens, right? And then after the achiever, you start going into what's called the pluralist, where you begin to see different people's perspectives and realize that what you define as the best isn't necessarily the best, right? And in my own developments, I've noticed 
how I've gone through that, where it's like, I'll motivate people to be the best they can be based on my decisions and what I consider that to be. Whereas now I've noticed myself begin to open up to the ideas that other people may have just like I said, different ideas of what they consider the best. And that may be completely different than what I consider to be the best. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that, I, I think I, I wondered how much, and from what I understand, like the, the sort of neural circuits that allow for self-reflection and self-awareness don't really fully come on to like 25 or something. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much that plays a role there too, how much it's maybe like a psychological expression of a neurobiological development of ascertaining yeah. a strong sense of who one is in themselves, but also by differentiating everyone else and stating that in a strong way by owning who we are, by judging everyone else by not being the same or assuming that everyone else could be better if they were just more like me, for example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, like that's, these are big brush strokes, you know, like sure. it's, it's so much more complex and nuanced than we're saying, you know, but mm -hmm. like there are probably like, you know, there are, there are 22 year olds that are as mature as 30 year olds. And there are 50 year olds that are barely 17. So uh, it's funny you say that though, cause I'm 26 and I've recently started getting into that kind of thinking. And so that's really speaks to your 25 is the, the age that happens. Right. Right. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting because Will and I, we have been using mushrooms mostly for the use of our self-development and stuff like that and spiritual development. And just recently, we had our first trip together where we did LSD together in, in my apartment. And it was very challenging for a lot of reasons, but mostly because we're so used to doing it on our own and kind of having our solo experience where we... Um, have whatever mental experience but then having somebody else there it was really challenging to let go because we were both expressing that we were kind of afraid to let go with somebody else there somebody else seeing you that way because it is such a vulnerable experience and like anything can come up emotionally physically and so we were wondering like how, what recommendations do you have for people when they are kind of going into these experiences together and how to navigate the added complexity of having somebody else's emotional experience happening in the same place as your own on psychedelics. Hmm. Got a collection of thoughts coming up. We'll see if I remember all of them. I might end <laughs> up forgetting your question. Let me know uh, what you're saying there. Um, I think when I was talking about this sort of letting things down, opening up, connecting, I mean, it's really easy to think about MDMA in that context, you know, the mm -hmm. chemical of connection, right? Mm -hmm. But the difference between MDMA and psilocybin is that with MDMA, for the most part, there's no, you're just so washed, or I, I am, and I think it's common, so washed in like this sense of love and safety and okayness with the world that revealing yourself is not only revealing yourself and having someone be revealed to you by your loving receptivity feels not only natural, it feels like an imperative, feels not only comfortable, it feels positive, euphoric, important, right? Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case with psilocybin, right? Psilocybin does can, doesn't can wash you over in just like love and peace and safety, but mm. it's not sort of like, it's not sort of a reliable bank you know, it also opens up a lot of insecurity, a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. And it makes me think of uh, Kalindi Igi, rest in peace, um, and his his premise of into the alone. I know he took that from Terrence McKenna because I heard him say it before. 
And I also am pretty sure Terrence McKenna took it from another philosopher who I can't remember. But he had mentioned why it was important to take mushrooms by yourself because if you really want to let go, if you really want to be completely in wherever it is that you're going, mm -hmm. even one other person in the room, you know, creates this sort of need for a persona, for a mask mm -hmm. of some variety or another. And there's something to be said there about the difference between, say, a, a sort of a horizontal arrangement and something more disbalanced, power disbalanced, like a therapeutic relationship. If the two of you are just going in and you're both like, hey, we're going to take mushrooms together, that's pretty horizontal. But if it's like one person is a facilitator or a guide or a support person and the other is the journeyer, that is a, that is a power differential, right? Mm -hmm. And so different you know different sort of configurations and dynamics will sort of like invite or allow or encourage different sort of ways in which we experience the dissolution <laughs> of of our sort of normal operating sense of self and so that said um two things one of which is about what mushrooms can teach us and the other of which is about your direct question okay so when I was talking about why it could be positive to be having experiences in relationship, the difficulty that you discussed is part of what's positive. Yeah. Okay. I like to, and I've been getting more into saying this, is that what psilocybin asks of you is as much a lesson as what it reveals. Mm -hmm. Okay. What psilocybin reveals might be insights about your childhood, places of connection. It might reveal, you know, like, uh, yeah, it might reveal all sorts of things that you're like, aha, the stuff that you come out the other side of it and you're like, yes, my partner feels cared for when I do the dishes. Check, yeah. you know, like everything yeah. is okay eventually. Trust and love. Check, right? These types of revealed. Yeah. But what it asks of you is as much a lesson too. It asks you to trust. It asks you to surrender. It asks you to be vulnerable with your own, or asks you to be intimate with your own vulnerabilities. You know, these are, these are lessons too, right? And in the context of revealing yourself with another person, what psilocybin is asking of you is like, can you trust even now? So it's, as, it's saying like, hey, I'm asking you to let the walls down. In fact, I'm kind of, I'm making, I'm asking you to be okay with this by making it happen, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that context, you're learning how to be even more vulnerable with each other because this is a whole other level of vulnerability. Now there's a whole other level of intimacy present. Right. And so that's something that's asked of you too. And from that, you learn something emotionally at the very least, how to speak to the fact that you're afraid to open up. That's a hell of a lesson. You know, it asked that of you by being like, hey, we're opening up in the context of you being afraid to do so or mm -hmm. getting you to. You know, I'm giving the mushrooms a agentic voice. We could talk mm -hmm. about that. I think they might have one. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, and so even even from there, that that could be a lesson because it's not just an idea of like, oh, I get afraid. It's like actually, oh, that's what that felt like. This is what letting, this is what speaking to that felt like. This is what encouraging myself to be okay with that felt like. That's a lesson too, right? And it's a lesson now that exists in the context of your relationship, which I don't know what the dynamic is, but it exists in the context of that relationship now. You know, it's mm -hmm. something that can be learned now that you've gotten a lesson in it, for example, okay? 
So speaking of intimacy, intimacy and vulnerability, what are some things, I think your question was something like, what are some things you can do in order to sort of like help set the stage for journeying together, mm -hmm. right? Well, intimacy and vulnerability, birth, death, sex, psychedelics. All of these things can happen indiscriminate of how intimate or vulnerable you are willing or going to be with another person, mm -hmm. right? Death and birth obviously is a bit complicated. Usually with birth, it's a pretty structured environment where very intentional people are there, you know, but the doctor say in a, in a, in a more sort of medical setting, they're not being very vulnerable with you, although they recognize it's a vulnerable moment, you know, mm -hmm. but being there with your partner, for example, or your family or someone you deeply care about who's present in the room, that's deeply vulnerable that the birth is happening there. Somebody dying, obviously profoundly vulnerable, not only for the person dying, but for everyone else in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Sex, well, that's pretty obvious. That's a profoundly vulnerable experience. But just like someone can die without any sort of like, <laughs> you know, advance notice, right? I mean, birth and death, again, are sort of complicated because they're so huge. Right. But even sex, you know, sex is a profoundly intimate moment between people. It's a moment of really profound intense connection but it isn't necessarily lots of people have lots of sex it doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily that for them and that's fine and good that's their that's their decision right and a lot of people have sex and there's literally no connection at all and it's not fine and good for them but it's the only way they know how to be for example so psychedelics profound intimate connection possible, but you could also just take a bunch of psychedelics with your friends and have no profound intimate connection at all because that's not the context of, of the, of mm -hmm. the, of the use, mm -hmm. right? So context of use makes a huge contributing factor. So if you want deep intimacy and presence and togetherness that's happening there, connection, then you make some sort of intentional arrangement to ensure that the context of the relationship is such that the context of use can invite that type of vulnerability and that type of intimacy. It's vulnerable no matter what, but it invites that type of intimacy, such as inviting someone to be next to you at your deathbed, you know, or inviting somebody into the room while you're giving birth, or actively doing what needs to be done to establish the type of intimate, uh, the type of structural connection in a relationship that allows for real profound intimacy, emotional intimacy, to arise and be and to be present in a sexual encounter mm -hmm. right so if you want profound and healthy and generative and safe feeling and positive sexual encounters with a partner you do the groundwork necessary in the relationship to have sort of put in those levies of interaction before having sex mm -hmm. right that you make and build the connection first and then the intimacy is in the arena the cathedral even within which the established intimacy can unfold and blossom anew, deepen, expand, etc. And it would be similar for taking psychedelics together. If you want to have that type of vulnerable, intimate, so on and so forth connection, you establish the relationship first before stepping into psychedelic intimacy, right? You have a sense mm -hmm. of what the relationship is. This, these are not these are not hard lines. They're just helpful suggestions, especially if the intention is deep connection. Right. Right. And now once you're in the experience, ideally within the relationship, you've already gotten pretty good at talking about your feelings, you know, 
like letting like crying in front of each other or whatever else you know sort of being emotionally vulnerable with each other because that is likely to happen being able to communicate when things are off you know or even at least established the container within which you're going to journey with that as an agreement that you're both comfortable with mm-hmm. um and then when you're in it it's a learning process yeah. that's why i assume that's why you were you were there or part of it was to learn at first it's learn how to be on mushrooms together mm-hmm. and then it's deepening like learning together with mushrooms you know mm-hmm. both are the same but one feels a lot more <laughs> like like uh you know, it, 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 one feels a lot more prominent right at the beginning and so in that what was asked of you was as important as much a lesson as what was revealed, which was how to be really now psychedelically vulnerable with each other in a way that otherwise you would never have been asked to do so if the mushrooms hadn't been like, hey, yo, here's some vulnerability for you. You got to show it. I'm going to make you feel really weird about it too. Um, so uh, I think I think that basically address addresses what you were, what you were uh, asking there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, you know, we, we, our intention going into that trip was to like, as friends and co-hosts to really bond together in that way and just kind of like find, I guess, like a synergistic space together that we may not have had, even though we've been friends for, you know, four or five years now. Um, and we touched in with each other beforehand where we said like, okay, if anything comes up, like if you need to be held, if, if, you know, you need to just be left alone. Like anything that happens, there's no judgment and no shame. Um, but at least on my own, you know, the, the mistake that I found that I really made was that I approached it as if it was kind of an individual voyage and didn't really, like you said, kind of set this container, like created this cathedral, so to speak, where we could both be inside and like have a, a set intention to really explore the relationship, to explore our friendship. You know what I mean? It was really just like go in and whatever comes up, comes up. There wasn't a lot of intention setting specifically for the relationship, at mm-hmm. least for myself. Mm-hmm. And it was very much a learning experience. Like it was our first time doing mm-hmm. psychedelics together. And as much as we know that all of that, it's very vulnerable and anything can come up. I think it was just shocking to be in that in that moment and really feel all of the resistance to letting go and having to gradually like work into that place of comfort on a psychological and physical level. Mm. And especially as friends, you know, like mm. I, I make no assumptions about the the structure of your friendship, but as friends, you're likely not deeply revealing vulnerability to each other in the way lovers or romantic partners mm. would be. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you didn't exactly have that sort of like you, I assume wouldn't have had that sort of as a running part of what's necessary to sustain the relationship, mm-hmm. right? So then it would be like, whoa, now we're here. And I think there's a lot of value in, in ex- say, exploring LSD together is different than exploring togetherness with LSD. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. There could be a lot of benefit in being like, yeah, that we could spend time, we're gonna put on a great album or something, and we're just gonna spend time in this journey together, mm-hmm. right? Um, in our journeys together. Right. And possibly, especially with psilocybin, the, there's a while there where it's kind of hard to be doing a lot of interaction it's, unless it's totally nonverbal. And there's a lot of reason for good sort of like sort of time within, 
you know, and there's, yeah. there's a lot of value to have that even as a part of a shared experience with others. Mm-hmm. Even the shared experiences I've had with group psilocybin journeys, there's a lot of wordlessness and there's a lot of time where we're not actually interacting with each other, you mm-hmm. know, and, but the, the interactions and connections sort of flow in and out as needed. Um, with LSD, it's, I think it's, I find it a little bit easier to be ongoingly interactive, sometimes so much so that I get to the very end and I'm like, oh, I didn't close my eyes once. Oh, I missed, I missed watching all the, all the everything unfolding, you know? Well, it's actually funny. I had kind of the opposite experience where um, I, I had the experience where like I experienced myself as the universe and experienced myself as having as the universe created everything for my own entertainment. And it was very like this real experience. And I remember trying to like convey this to you and uh, to Kaylee and I like forgot a word. And then in that moment, it felt like so real that I'd realized that like the universe had forgotten, had forgotten a word so it could watch itself, like find that word again. And so like trying to like come up with a conversation together to share these experiences was very difficult because I was so like in my own head, like experiencing myself as the universe, you know? Yeah, and I completely lost all words and wasn't experiencing language at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Fair to say that it's also very dose dependent too. Yeah, yeah. well this was on seven twelfths of a tab. So it actually, I, I don't, like it was actually my first time on acid too. It was not her first time. Um, but I feel like that's a very small dose to be having an experience like that. Well, I mean, tabs aren't exactly regulated doses. Yeah. I'm not good sure point. if you, right? So it's like, point, yeah. was that 70 micrograms or was it 250? Because that's a huge difference. You know, seven, yeah. seven, would you say seven twelfths? <laughs> yeah, it was a very bizarre dose. Yeah. 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 It was basically, we had, uh, I had done a third of a tab and two hours later we didn't feel anything. So we were like, okay, there's always that mistake you make where you're like, oh, we don't feel anything. Let's take even more. But after two hours, we were like, okay, we're in this to like experience this trip together. Like, let's take more. And so I took a quarter after that. So that'd be seven, seven twelfths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was fun. It was good. Um, but that kind of gets us into the next question we had where, you know, what happens when you have those um, kind of relational shadow elements come up where it's not merely you experiencing um, whatever you're experiencing or having like this, this experience of love or gratitude for one another where it's like let's say that you've had an experience where uh, there's a huge argument or a falling out and you're kind of coming together as two people wanting to work on this on this shadow element on this rejected feelings or whatever it is how do you really prepare for an experience where you're going in expecting something very uh, that could be very traumatic come up or something very intense in that way Um, I don't think taking psychedelics together is the best way to solve relationship problems. Uh, it's not, it's, well, let me rephrase that. I don't think taking psychedelics together or taking drugs together in general is the right way to, Mm -hmm. to resolve an, an acute conflict. Right. Right. I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is, I think there could be a lot of value in taking psychedelics together, including MDMA to, to sort of address the underlying patterns between mm. you that are leading to an ongoing conflict or a seemingly irresolvable conflict in the context of a relationship where the resolution of that conflict to sustain the relationship is important. Mm-hmm. Some conflicts are coming up. 
They might be signs that the relationship isn't the right relationship. Okay. This is all assuming that it is a collaborative, healthy, positive, valuable relationship between people who are mostly adults who want to sustain that relationship. Um, and you know, not like an abusive relationship or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so in that, um, it goes down to, I think having, you know, having the structure of the relationship first, Yeah, you know, and recognizing if you're both in a good place and being like, we're both, we're both sort of, um, you know, with, with agency and sort of desire, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of, um, we both want this. I want this. You want this. We want this. We're both ready. We're both willing and then step in. Then the, whatever is sort of ongoing between you becomes the thing in the middle. Right. And possibly there's going to be, you know, phases of where there's going to be a lot of deep stuff that's within and then it comes out and trauma and things can come up. Things can be scary. You know, transference and counter-transference is a very real thing, especially in psychedelic therapy, um, especially in more relationally, I guess, engaged psychedelic therapy, but just in general, you know, I, I just for your listeners, I assume both of you know, you know, transference is, is a form of projection. So one way of projecting is that like, there's something I don't like about myself that I judge other people for instead of looking at the fact that I don't like it in myself, for example, right. that would be projecting. I'm projecting my issues with authority onto a police officer, for example, maybe a fair projection. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but transference as a form of projection is where you make another person sort of the avatar for your issues with an entirely different person. It's not like I'm projecting my issues with my dad onto you. Mm. You are my father now. Right. So I, it's like, it's not only I'm projecting my issues with authority onto you, I'm projecting onto you that you are that authority. You are yeah. that person. Right. And then okay. counter transference is when you don't realize that's happening, but it triggers something in you because the way that what I'm transferring onto you is close enough with your own stuff that you respond in turn and mm -hmm. actually become that person and treat me the way I expect to be treated by the person I'm transferring onto you. And then it becomes cross-transference and it gets very muddy <laughs> and it gets yeah, very difficult bit, yeah. right, to be in. Um, and although something like that can be happening, even an awareness of that in the structure of the relationship is sort of an avenue, a caveat wherein that can be identified. You know, and sometimes maybe it has to happen so it can be identified, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I think when it, when choosing to take psychedelics to resolve issues mm -hmm. is a very delicate process and needs to be approached as such. And same when you're doing it in relationship um, as well. I'm not sure if I missed maybe part of your question there, but yeah. Um, I mean, I think you, you covered it. I think you covered it. It, it was really... <laughs> You know, the, the thing I got really out of what you said is like, if there's an acute issue again, like maybe doing psychedelics together isn't the best way of dealing that. But when it's you've had this issue and you've talked about it and come to a certain understanding, there may be a benefit to doing psychedelics that can allow some uh, perhaps more meta pattern come up that could help you understand it more or to work on healing from that experience that you've already kind of like said what you needed to say and come to an agreement beforehand. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or yeah, at the very least, getting to the point where it's it's a collaborative effort that you're both stepping into to try to figure out what's happening between you. Yeah. If okay. if you, for example, um, if if I feel like I've got a lot of stuff coming up for me that actually has nothing to do with my partner, but as a con as a consequence of us being around each other, I'm ac- it's accidentally off gassing onto her. Mm-hmm. it's not her responsibility for us to take psychedelics so we can sort out our conflict, right? It's my responsibility to figure out what's going on with me right. and get a handle on that enough so that I can then bring to the relationship both where I perceive is going wrong, ask of my partner their support in helping me stay clear with not falling into the patterns that have been damaging and also have them help me sort of live what might be an alternative way of conducting myself around a particular issue so that it doesn't result in negative interactions, right? So in that case, it would be like, if psychedelics are going to be taken, I would I would take them for myself to figure myself out and then bring what I've learned to the relationship, either literally by saying it, but at the very least sort of behaviorally by living it out as best as I can, mm-hmm. right? Now, if, if it's in the relationship that's different, right? If in an acute, if, if we're in conflict, we want to move towards conflict resolution, right? The answer to com- a conflict is not let's take substances so that we can sort out the conflict. It's like, no, it's usually communication or mediation or something else. Um, and possibly it might include substances, but I definitely don't think it's the, f- the best first line of approach, you know? Um, but then if it seems like a conflict doesn't resolve or keeps repeating, or there's a pattern there, or here's another one. Okay. I heard Lior Roseman say this at, I think it was a psychedelic science 2017, um, that you don't have to be sick to be better. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So relatively healthy relationships Mm -hmm. that are doing pretty good, choosing to take psychedelics to do what my partner and I call deep relational architecture work. Okay right? Also a thing. And then, oh, did I lose track of your, your question there? So you're, you're sort of like, you're, the point is, is like, if you're taking substances to try to resolve a conflict is not a good first line of approach, essentially, right. you know? Hmm. What about like, when you're in the experience, and you didn't necessarily plan going in to deal with this relational issue, but it is part of your shadow yours or the relationships and it comes up but it can be a difficult place to navigate in terms of communication when you're in that experience and I don't know do you have any tips for what to do if stuff like that comes up in the trip itself and it wasn't planned for hmm uh well expect the unexpected <laughs> it's sort of like a good sort of line to have on hand um mm-hmm. with psychedelics uh yeah, I mean that's 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 interesting. I think you know that is all still about the structure of the relationship beforehand yeah. and mm-hmm. the context setting. You know, I have a video called "How to Ceremony with Psilocybin," and it's about doing it with groups or that's related. And I talk about doing uh, three things that everyone says in the group first, which is intention, fear, and something beautiful about okay. the substance, right? And the intention is so everyone knows why you're there. And the intention can be like, I'm here to sort of like, you know, I'm here to just unpack some stuff in myself 
and do a little solo journey in the company of people I care about and trust. That's a fair intention. You know, my intention, for example, your intention's like, let's, you know, like let's experience this substance together and see if we can sort of deepen and evolve our friendship through the experience. Great intention, right? The fear, it's really important to speak our fears. I don't know if you ever heard Tim Ferriss's concept of fear mapping. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to no. plan doing a thing, you take some time to really write out every possible thing you're afraid of going wrong all the way to the furthest possible extreme, which whenever I do it, I always end up with dying cold and alone in a gutter somehow. <laughs> um, but thinking about the worst possible outcome and all the things you're afraid of happening, because mm -hmm. one of the really messed up things about unexpressed, unrecognized, unlooked at, uh, you know, unheld fears, like actively in awareness, mm -hmm. is that they have this really sticky capacity to make themselves come true. You know, that we end up making them come true by trying to avoid them, by right. trying to avoid them even there. It's like we stop, we stop, we, we don't see all the things that are signaling us that we're moving towards our fear because we don't want to acknowledge that the fear is there or valid, mm -hmm. right? So when we state our fears, I am, I am letting everyone know this is a thing that I'm afraid of. And that serves a couple different functions. One function is now everyone knows what it is that I'm afraid of. So if it starts to happen or they're on the ready to help me mm -hmm. Two is that one of the, a very hard thing about being afraid in a group, especially on psychedelics is letting other people know that you're afraid and what you're afraid of. But if that's already done, whatever fear there is on speaking the fear or the shame or the embarrassment or the guilt of coming down on other people's good times or whatever, mm -hmm. that's sort of alleviated because you've already expressed it into the group. And they've all expressed it and everyone has collectively decided that they're on the ready to help that. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and everyone's on the ready to help each other. Yeah. And you have readied yourself to help others too. Right. Mm. And so when that kind of stuff comes up, it's like, ah, yes, we're ready for that. We're prepared. Right. And you end on beauty because you end on beauty. Right. You know, like yeah. don't, don't leave it on fear. Um, because there's so much more to the experience than the things that we might be afraid of. So when things like that come up, ideally you already have the structure there mm -hmm. to have that kind of support and that the people around have the kind of like basic trip setting skills necessary to help someone through a difficult time. And everyone is willing and ready and accepting that we're all taking the gamble that somebody might freak out or get upset or something come up. And we're all willingly equally proposing that we're ready and wanting to help that person in case. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's an important part because I mean, if you're in an experience with psychedelics and you're in it with somebody and, and the structure of it is like that you're now resenting them. I, I don't know. I'm that the kind of stuff just happens, but like in the context of doing it for relational work, I think having that sort of like pre-established dynamics sewn into the context of use is important. Mm -hmm. yeah okay. but then in that moment you help that person you help them breathe you get them some water you know basic trip sitting stuff you let them know like it's okay just like just trust you know like you're all right this kind of stuff like basic sort of support you help them through not help them down kind of thing mm -hmm. um yeah yeah that's it reminds me of a really great distinction that i i, I read I can't remember where, yeah, for the law of attraction, where, you know, 
the, the law of attraction can be kind of a contentious issue, I guess, when you get into more like scientific circles where, you know, there's some spiritual force that you can manifest stuff and this kind of thing. But really, the way at least I perceive it is like you have the RAS, which is like the reticular activation system, which is like a selective focus where, you know, if you buy a red car, suddenly you'll start seeing a lot of red cars around. Um, and in the context of the law of attraction, um, if you're so focused on your fears, all you're going to see is the things that feed into that fear. And so that's going to increase the likelihood that something, you know, happens that really confirms that fear, you know, and it seems to me what you're saying is kind of, I guess this is a distinction that I, I found was that you can confuse the law of attraction by saying, okay, never think about anything you're afraid of. When in reality, all that stuff is still there. It's still kind of like manifesting in the background, so to speak. But by bringing it out into the open and dealing with it and making it something known, that's how you really let go of it. And so that sounds like what you're saying, where it's like, if you make your fears known and you put it out there, it's no longer something that's really defining your selective focus. And so creating a situation in which the fear could be confirmed. From a film, fear mapping perspective, yes. And also inside the experience, yes. And then it also yeah. informs these other sort of like, provides uh, these other functions as well. I think you had asked something that I didn't answer. Um, and it was something like in a relationship when trauma stuff comes up or like issues come up and how to address that. Mm -hmm. I mean, ideally, if you're both going in, you want that stuff to come up, but you want it to come up differently. Mm -hmm. and as it's coming up, it can be very hard. Remember earlier I meant about like, I talked about the idea of like being a perpetrator and like having been perpetrated against every single one of us have been hurt by others and have hurt others. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I assume it was by accident. And even for those of us who end up intentionally hurting others, chances are that was a downstream effect of having been hurt very badly somewhere else mm -hmm. anyways. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or just like total misunderstanding of the impact of your actions, whatever it might be. In a relationship, you know, w you accidentally hurt each other, right? You accidentally get hurt by each other. And part of the thing in resolving conflicts in a journey like that is sort of letting that come up. And it can, when it comes up, it can be, you know, there could be a lot of shame there, a lot of guilt. And this, and being able to speak to that is important. Being able to feel that is important. Being able to like, be seen expressing it as important, you know, um, and to be able to sort of unpattern and unhook and express and reveal, you know, and make space for something else is an important part of doing that kind of work together. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it comes up and it's like really frightening for the one person or really challenging for the one person, you know, then the then, then we go back to what I said before, the other person's like, okay, um, I'm here for you. I had an experience taking LSD with my partner and I had said to her, we had talked about, I said, sometimes when I take LSD, I have uh, this memory come up of nearly dying in Peru and it comes up and it always focuses around this weird, the, this, the problem of the apple. Should I eat an apple or should I not eat an apple? Is my blood sugar in a dangerous place? Cause it was a blood sugar episode while I was on ayahuasca. Is it in a dangerous place that I have to eat the apple or I'm going to be in trouble? Or is it fine? Or is it that I, if I eat, that it's not fine and if I eat the apple, it'll get worse. 
You see how this conundrum can unfold? And then it levels me up in anxiety. I warned her. I was like, the first time we took LSD together, I said, this is a kind of thing that has happened. You know, generally I pass through it quite fine. You know, usually I'm just like, I'm in it. And then I just have to like, I think my way through it for a minute. I've had some difficult experiences and it's been mostly fine. Usually I eat the apple and it's fine or I don't and it's fine. Mm. But this particular time it came up and I was like, oh, I was able to say like, oh, that I think I'm, I think I'm in the apple paradox or whatever. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the apple incident. I'm in the apple. And she was like, oh, and she was like, like, okay, I'm here for you. And I'm like, wait, can we, this is so many levels. Like, can we do a Nadera? Nadera is like a, an emotional processing uh, technique that I learned from Douglas Tatarin, his work in the bio emotive. He'd be a great person for your podcast, although he's not all about the psychedelics. He's a very interesting, deep meditating kind of guy. Um, and she said, okay. And so we went downstairs and I went through this process of like, of telling her all about and speaking out every single layer of the terror and like all this stuff that I'd never been able to go into before in that way while on the journey because she was there with me. Right. So that was a really important thing. And that has, you know, that was something that came up that was trauma. You know, and there have been moments where we've been journeying and I realize like, holy shit, I've been, you know, I've been acting in a way that has been about this and it's been hurting you and I didn't see that and I'm so sorry, you know, and I've, you know, she's held that and vice versa. We reveal ourselves to each other, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, ideally the stuff does come up, you know, mm, yeah. but it comes up differently and it comes up in the context of each other being ready, willing, and skilled enough to support each other in a positive way, which is again, why it's such delicate work, you know, right. and all of this, it's like, let's not think that this is necessarily a good idea for us all to be doing, but if it's something that we skill ourselves up to be doing, it can be incredibly positive. It could also have the opposite effect if things go wrong, for example, so caveat safety <laughs> make it very considered decision so that kind of gets us to this one question where close to the beginning of decomposing the shadow there was a, a story involving your sister that i found really moving where um you were on mushrooms in your parents basement when you called your friends to come pick you up and as you were leaving you had a moment where you realized how much you and your sister had grown apart Right. And you found yourself like suddenly overcome with love for her. And you um, you hugged her and like told her, I love you. Right. And her her response to it was like, oh, OK, love you, too, bro. Like kind of like an <laughs> yeah. awkward laugh. Right. And yeah, we still uh, laugh about that moment now. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I was just, you know, that it really touches in with an element in the psychedelic experience, which is like we've been talking about those really powerful emotions that you have for certain people in your life. Right. And so I guess the question there is, have you been able to find a way to kind of bridge the experiences you have in the psychedelic trip concerning certain people in your life and really bringing that into that relationship with them? Yes, I have for the most part. And by the, the, the reason I say for the most part is that relationships aren't something that I decide, right? what a relationship looks like is not my decision. What I put in and how I conduct myself in relationship is for the most part, my decision, as long as I am, as long as, well, there's, there's some nuance there. We're 
because people can be manipulated and, and, and this kind of stuff. So that, you know, that held in mind, you know, to the degree to which I am connected with my, with my own sense of agency in the relationship and in myself emotionally and psychologically, because sometimes we act in ways that we actually don't have any sort of agentic capacity to stop <laughs> because we're overwhelmed in one way or another. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so yes, for the most part, but it all depends on how other people show up. Right. Yeah. There can be an invitation, a request to deepen an intimacy, you know, not necessarily sexual, but emotional, friendly, you know, platonic intimacy, mm-hmm. you know, but if it's not, if it's not responded to, if it's not sort of like, if that offer isn't sort of like, yeah, let's go there. Well, then it can't go there. Right. Um, so when I think about things and experiences I've had with psychedelics that have come into my relationships, the profound sense of say love for my sister, you know, or love for my parents or love for my partner, love for life, you know, or, or things that I realize I don't want to do that again. You know, or like, wow, I realize I've been feeling like this for a long time and it's blocked me from being able to let love in, for example, or any number of things that we realize about ourselves or about the relationship. The way that it's carried in is by hanging on to, holding, developing, growing, and and integrating the feeling of that insight. You know, the feeling of like, wow, I do really love my sister. I do really cherish this connection. I do really want to spend more time with this person so that we can know each other better, whatever it is, and then translate that into action. And the way that that translates into action is by bringing yourself to the relationship in a way that is oriented from that place. So I deeply care. I have lo- I've had lots of experiences where being away from my family has been profoundly hurtful. When I was living in Alberta, I would have experiences where it was just crushing how far away mm-hmm. I felt from them. But I'd also have experience of how just like incredible it felt for me to be out there as a person. Right. There's a weird sort of balance to be had there. Mm-hmm. But knowing how important those relationships are, knowing especially, you know, this isn't psychedelic, but exploring work around death and dying, especially the work of Stephen Jenkinson, the more I realized like, whoa, like these relationships matter. Like the relationships that matter really fucking matter. Yeah. I'm sorry for swearing on your show. It's and right. and it and and that, you know, because of that, if I want to really let in how intensely they matter, if I really let it in, you know, then then from there I have an orienting point for how I prioritize my conduct and my time towards creating relational dynamics that allow for that thing that really matters to flourish. And that might look like sorting out conflicts. It might look like spending more downtime together. It might look like doing things that are fun together. It might look like a number of different things, Mm -hmm. right? Or saying that thing you never said, or, you know, like accepting responsibility for that thing you've been avoiding, (laughs) you know, or whatever it is. Um, But uh, I think yeah, I think that's 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 the best. That's probably not the best answer, but it's the best I got presently. I talk, to talk about integration a bit, um, we understand that you do some integration coaching for people, mm-hmm. right? And um, integration is something a lot of people talk about, but it's kind of 
difficult sometimes to understand what that really means and what it really entails on the part of oneself, like the responsibility of integrating the trip. And something I find difficult about the process of integration is sticking with the process and gauging my progress with integrating a particular lesson from a trip and really finding those concrete ways to make changes in my life. And I was just wondering, how do you coach people to find those, those concrete ways to integrate their, their lessons? Uh, it would depend on what they experienced mm-hmm. in what, like, and what was the psychological context from which that experience came as in like, who are they as a person? Why were they taking the psychedelic? Why is that particular thing meaningful? You know, for example, and then also the context of their lives, you know, like what are they doing? What relationships are they in? What is their job situation? What is their living situation? Right. What is available to them both like financially, emotionally, physically from like a resource, all of those from like a resource perspective relationally and then sort of tailoring it from there. But I also think it's important to have some kind of, yeah, having like a basic structure that says, that creates a um, uh, a, a coherent sense of the next steps from here out of an experience and then doing your best to work on that within a, within a certain, within an acute time frame, and then not putting too much stress or pressure on yourself to keep that going perfectly forever onwards. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes, you know, just like we wake up and fall asleep and wake up and fall asleep. Every time we wake up, we wake up with a little bit more, <laughs> maybe a little bit less, you know, a little bit more and a little bit less than we did the night before. Right. Mm-hmm. We change, we're different every time we wake, you know? And so sometimes integrating a trip, a psychedelic experience also means living a certain amount of life between the experience and the moment in which it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But concretely, but also abstractly, I think it comes down to connecting with and getting a sense of the meaning of the experience as it is alive in your body, as you remember it was like through through bringing it back and being alive in it and then tracking how that meaning fits into the context of your life and then learning a way of cultivating and working with the meaningfulness of that experience until it sort of eventually translates, you translate it into pragmatic action. Mm-hmm. Um, so the meaning of what happened in the journey is never entirely what it's going to mean in the rest of your life because the context and conscious of consciousness from which that meaningful moment blossomed is not the same context of consciousness that is your daily life. Some sort of translation has to happen for it to be applicable, mm-hmm. right? And then if enough of that sort of unfolds and you deepen it enough so into your, into your way in the world, then it is an ongoing reference point moving forward for that translation to continue to unfold over time. That Mm -hmm. sounds very abstract, um, but 
because it's an abstract model of the thing. But in the actual coaching, it's very concrete things about like that experience brought up these feelings and these feelings exist in this context. And, you know, like, and based on what you're telling me, it sounds like these are the things that feel good. Okay. That also feels good. Here's how you could like practice that. And then what does it mean? What comes to you in a sense of how do you do that? Because once you're connected with it and you can orient from it, it's a lot easier to get a sense of what your next steps are from there. Um, but connecting with the, the impact of the journey and making sense of it can be very difficult. And it can be, and sometimes it's almost requires another person to sort of be there because sometimes we can get stuck in our own thinking about a thing that it's hard to sort of think of and see things differently. Well, like we lose the forest for the trees, for example, and having someone like someone skilled in just providing like even just feedback of what they're hearing can be helpful. What I do ends up having a lot more sort of like focused emotional exploration and feeling things out. And it's brought in through integrating a variety of different sort of techniques that I've learned from like compassionate inquiry and Mark Wolin's core language approach and biomotive Nadera techniques and IFS and stuff, things that I've taken some trainings in and sort of integrated into my own sense of how to integrate psychedelic experiences to for the most part, fairly well, um, fairly successful results for people. So mm -hmm. it's very abstract. I'm actually writing a book right now about it. Um, okay. And so there's some stuff that I'm not saying because I'm not ready <laughs> to put it into the sort of economy of ideas yet. I'm sort of yeah. holding mm -hmm. it close to the chest. People who have worked with me know what it's like firsthand. Um, but from the, from the modeling standpoint, I'm still holding it in. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And... Yeah, on that too. Do you think it's necessary to have a support group or system or at least even just one other person to help you integrate an experience? Or do you think necessary? No. Not necessary, no. No, necessary, no. Um or helpful. Helpful, or yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very much so. Um okay. sometimes it can feel necessary, you know, and I think being in community and being in relationship is a necessary mm -hmm. aspect of coming to be who we want to be and who we are. Mm -hmm. um, because none of us are really truly individuals. If you get down into the sort of like into the reads about the thing, you know, like I am actually a functioning ecology of life. You know, the very, the very sort of neuromodulatory chemicals that direct or, you know, okay, so chicken or the egg, the, the, Mo, the, the Mobius strip of my mind and body, you know, and the, the, the neurochemicals that sort of like operate there are produced by microbes. A lot of them are produced by microbes in my gut, you know? So mm -hmm. if I get the wrong ones in there or they're not on my side or I'm not feeding them right, then I'm not going to be able to feel the, whatever, the contentment of serotonin or the, the, the sort of, the go get them of <laughs> norepinephrine or whatever it is, you know? So, um, yeah, okay. let's see. Is there more to that? Uh, I think for a lot of people too, there's a, there's something about, there's something about the, the cherishing of a thing. Um, and that thing could be what we experienced or what we came to learn about the world um, or even the fact that we've been through a thing, right? And that it's cherished, but 
but it feels stifled if it's just locked away inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it needs to bloom. It feels like it needs to be held and seen, you know, but the people around us, you know, there's a saying of like, don't, don't, I think it's a biblical saying, don't, do not cast your pearls upon swine. You know, every time I reveal a vulnerable thing and it's dismissed or disregarded or straight up ridiculed, which often happens for people who share deeply meaningful psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. to the person receiving it, it just sounds like they're saying some weird ass shit that they had on their drug experience, but to another person, it's like the core, like a core aspect. It's like a inside out Pixar movie core memory kind of thing, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and they can be tarnished and having to sort of keep that locked up inside can feel extremely isolating. Right. And having a community of people where you can open up about that kind of stuff, or even just a community of people that isn't actually a community, a culture of people who are talking about it outside of yourself, that you can listen to them talking about it can feel relieving, you know, like other people who neither of us will ever meet and will never have any interaction with whatsoever, or even know that they exist, will listen to this podcast. And that thing that felt stifled inside of them will feel a little bit of relief knowing that there's other people out there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that, I think it'd be very helpful and also pragmatically on how to make sense of an experience that doesn't make any sense. Getting some skilled feedback and other perspectives is incredibly helpful. Anytime we're sort of like stuck in a loop and can't figure something out, chances are other perspectives are going to be helpful, even if they're terrible. You're mm -hmm. like, well, well, that's definitely not it. So I'm at least going in the right direction, <laughs> uh, you know, with psychedelic experiences, obviously they're more, they can be more vulnerable. Um, but necessary, no. I know lots of people who feel perfectly content to just like have their experiences just in themselves and they live their life and they don't necessarily talk to other people about it. And that serves them exactly the way they want to be. They just live it in their lives without other people even knowing that they take psychedelics <laughs> and that that works for them. So, so yeah, um, that kind of leads into, I think, talking more about this idea of kind of like the collective shadow and at the end of decomposing the shadow, you have a sort of like call to action about how each of us needs to take responsibility for the part we personally play in the narratives that are, you know, in a lot of cases, destroying our society. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about the individual shadow and we've talked about the collective shadow on a smaller, more intimate scale. But what about on the grand scale of like an entire society or for example, like, you know, the, the shadow, so to speak of, racism or of capitalism or even of, of socialism of people being completely against any kind of socialistic policy simply because of, you know, crimes by the Soviet Union or something like this. How do you think that mushrooms and psychedelics in general, as they become more accepted in the mainstream, are going to be used or could be used to help, you know, a shadow of millions of people become integrated or heal from that? Uh, well... I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. No, uh, I don't. I can think of a couple examples even of people who take lots of psychedelics and mm -hmm. they still conduct themselves in incredibly hateful, violent ways. Yeah. They see themselves as being on the morally righteous side of things, but they still conduct themselves in that way. I'm sure all of the example of like, I know this guy, he took ayahuasca like 40 times and he's still a fucking asshole, you know, like, <laughs> like that's a, that's a real thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of experiences we have with psychedelics are incredibly mediated by their context of use. And the sort of central crux of that context is our mindset 
And our mindset isn't just, you know, what is my intention? Am I willing to be open? Mindset is the entire sort of sociocultural psychic context, mm-hmm. right? It's all the stories is what we understand about what they are and what they're for. You know, I, had, I recently gave a talk called the intelligent presence of psilocybin. And um, I talked about, let's see if I can actually just access the, um, the thing that I wrote here to share it with you. Yeah, I said, so um, our psychedelic experiences are heavily mediated by context of use. And the crux of that context is the mindset with which, through which, and by which we enter the psychedelic realms. That mindset is comprised of the stories we tell ourselves about what psilocybin is and or is not directly and indirectly. Those stories are changing as psychedelics move from the counterculture to the clinic, to the boardroom, to the stock market. In the midst of it all, something is getting lost, or perhaps better said, something seems to be getting dominated into representational non-existence by the human superiority complex. Now, that's aside, but the point is, is that, um, is that providing psychedelics to people in a clinical context that is for that person's sort of mental health, mm-hmm. but the context in which that clinical experience is happening is one where who provides and to whom has been decided by a toxic organization of funding is not going to lead to world peace. Mm. You know, like uh, there are lots of terrible people that take, you know, for example, if you think back to uh, what was the, you know, if you think back to, you know, the seventies or eighties, or even now, there are lots of people that take acid and are still like violent bikers. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's like a lot of drug supply comes from people, you know, the, the acid comes from them. Right. You know, like, so does the meth. Right. So, um, yeah. And so, and, and this is an example James Kent brought up on his last 10 episodes of dose nation or the final 10, um, about the guy who invented 8chan, which is basically a sort of like no holds barred version of 4chan that wow. they invented as a con- as as a response to some conversations being too extreme there. <laughs> he was high on mushrooms when he was like, "Oh, I should create this other place mm-hmm. for us to connect where we can say whatever we want and talk about whatever we want, including the most horrid, racist, crazy shit." Yeah. You know, I think, I think it came out of the, it came out of the context of Gamergate, which was like a bunch of incredibly misogynistic, horrible shit about female gamers and Mm -hmm. 4chan shutting down on that. And then 8chan getting open. So that misogynistic bullshit can keep unfolding. And it was an insight on psilocybin that led to that. Right. It could be insights on, you know, lots of tech billionaires are having insights on, in Burning Man and so on and so forth, you know, but that's not stopping how fucked up big tech and the surveillance capitalism surveillance state is still unfolding, you know, that people are going to Burning Man and getting high on psychedelics, having profound moments of connection and then returning to their jobs inspired to like work harder in the development of technology that gets put in weapons. Right. So there's lots of like my Somebody who knows more might have a better deeper dive on that whole Gamergate and whatever else and a lot other examples that I don't have the full picture on. But the point is, is that, you know, this is something that um, 
oh, I can't remember her name now. I think it was Kate something from Blue Star Pledge. Kanur, Kate Kanur said in a, the Rise of Psychedelic Capitalism film that Rebel Wisdom put out a long time ago, which she said like something like we're creating clinical settings for people to have experiences that help them correct and heal the mental illnesses that are brought about through them living in a toxic society. Mm-hmm. And if the, the, the corporate financial structure of those clinics is defined by that same toxic society with no change, which is totally likely the direction it's going, then we're not actually going to be bettering society. We're just going to be temporarily bettering people in their lives, which is good, but it's not going to lead to this overall greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when, when you, what it could be, it could be a lot of people getting a deeper sense of connection to nature, a deeper sense of the value of protecting, you know, ecological habitat. It could be, uh, more people recognizing that it makes more sense to play with their kids than to work another 20 hours this week or whatever it is. It could, but there's a lot of places where that might not be the case. You know, and it also depends on access too, right? Like if people who are in the lower economic brackets of whatever aren't able to get into those places, then, right. you know, and I'm not going to talk about whether or not psychedelics can solve or resolve racism. I don't think that's my, I don't think it's necessarily my place. I have interviewed people who are, have been the subjects uh, mm-hmm. or like the, the victims of racism throughout their lives. They found it to be incredibly positive. You know, taking psychedelics has definitely revealed and given me a capacity to catch myself when pre-embedded racial prejudices emerge and me have like a like a moment of very quickly being like, that's bullshit. You know, like, no, thanks. Right. Mm -hmm. And choosing something different, you know, so uh, maybe, but I don't want to necessarily speak to that because I don't I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there is something really positive that could come out of all of that. You know, but I don't know, because there's lots of people who take psychedelics who think that they're doing good, you know, but forget that the that the manner of inquiry is as is as important as the answer we come to, you know. So um yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not hopeful. I'm not hopeless, <laughs> you know. Um yeah. but I I I think that the sort of like there's a there's a narrative being formed around like the legitimization of psychedelics through the through medicalization is some sort of ticket to to like fixing our world problems and um it's being sold really hard and i really encourage people not to buy it yeah um it's much more complex than that and uh you know just like anything that appears to be having positive impact it can be usurped by bad actors to justify worse behaviors Mm-hmm. Um, or propagating the very f- further propagating the very foundations of why there was a problem in the first place. So, um, I definitely don't think I'm the best person to answer that question in a way, you know, like I, I, I don't hold myself as an authority on those things, but that's how I've been thinking about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that really, um, I'm reading a book by Ken Wilber right now, and he kind of talks about how there's different stages of development and, you know, if you have a, 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 an experience of spiritual enlightenment, 
you will interpret that experience through whatever stage of development you're at or, or basically your worldview. And if so you have someone who is very ethnocentric, they would experience that spiritual enlightenment through the ethnocentrism. And so it wouldn't be like, okay, you, you have this spiritual enlightenment experience and suddenly you're this perfect person. It's like, no, you still have the code that you kind of operate through in the world operating. And so that's basically what you seem to be saying. It's like, it, there is no kind of panacea for, for psychedelics or for spiritual enlightenment or any of these things. It really is like a multifaceted issue. And psychedelics may help, but they also may hinder in a lot of ways. And it's just like, there's not going to be a, there's not going to be a, a end solution where it's just like things are all better after this happens, after psychedelics are legalized or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. that is, that is what I'm inferring. And, and there's possibility that, that something positive could come about. Yeah. Um, but it, we don't know what that's going to, what, what that's going to look like yet, really. Yeah. Um, um, maybe so oh there's Sorry? there was actually one more thing about okay. collective suffering okay collective shadow work um i would just inf refer people to listen to my recent podcast with christopher Bache, or well however recent it is i don't know when you're going to release this called mm -hmm. um called global collapse spirituality and the birth of the future human where he talks quite a bit about collective shadow work um so i would encourage checking that out Okay, so I just wanted to ask about some of the really challenging experiences that you've had that you described in The True Light of Darkness, specifically about the one going into the sensory deprivation tank, specifically to confront your shadow. And you do mention that these challenging experiences can be the most valuable if one takes the responsibility required in integrating and understanding that lesson. Um, but you also say that people don't necessarily need to go to these very dark places and to obtain valuable lessons. And they can, they can be potentially damaging just as what we were just talking about as well. And that you wouldn't recommend it. Um, but because they can also be valuable, uh, at what point do you distinguish between if something challenging and pushing into those really hard places is helpful and beneficial and when, when should you not go there? Hmm. I don't think that there's a hard rule there. Mm -hmm. um, context is everything. And uh, context is constantly changing. And who we are tomorrow is different than who we are last week, you know, and different experiences land for different people at different times and for the same person at different times in different ways. And uh, I think generally well, I stand behind like these can be really powerful. That doesn't have to be difficult to be positive, um, but it can, they can be really positive, difficult ones if you're in a difficult place, but it isn't necessarily just like, you know, taking substances together isn't the best first line of approach for an ongoing conflict with your relationship. You know, taking psychedelics isn't the best first line of approach for, oh, I'm struggling, right? Um, and I, th it's weird because like, it's a learning process there too. Chances are, you know, unless you have an educated community around you, or at the very least educated, skilled facilitators and practitioners around you, you're probably not going to know when it's time to, you know, like, muster up the courage and take the dose and when it's time to like step back and just like take some time and have a hot bath and just like talk to your friends talk to your whatever it is you know mm -hmm. um 
yeah, and so there might be some mistakes being made there. Um, and sometimes things are so big and it's like psychedelics, yeah, psychedelics almost definitely could help, but the context in the context in which you have it available to you is not one that provides the type of security or support needed to go through the experience for it to be positive, which means there's a good chance that it might end up being negative. And so maybe leaning into other areas or ways of support is, are better. You know, and for example, like maybe you're struggling really hard, but actually you don't have access to safe and well-supported psychedelic experience. And maybe it makes more sense to talk to a psychiatrist, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. So um, yeah, there's no hard and fast lines there. There's a learning process um, and there's a gamble every time. Right. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose and you get better playing the game, <laughs> you know, over time. Uh, and yeah, I would still generally caution people to be extremely cautious and conscientious. You know, it's mm -hmm. they're brilliant, bright, beautiful, colorful fire, but they are fire after all. As we move to the end of the conversation, was there anything else you'd like to mention or other than my relevant access points on the internet. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes. Anyone who's interested in anything that I can do, I, I, that I can do. Uh, so <laughs> anyone that's interested in anything that I do can go to just jameswjesso.com, jameswjesso.com, and you'll find everything there. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at jameswjesso, although mostly Twitter these days for better or worse. Yeah. mostly worse <laughs> yeah okay. thank you so much for this conversation thank you thank so you. much for being our first interviewee huzzah wishing you <laughs> many more incredible interviews and success with your podcast from here thank, thank you. you thank you okay so that was the episode thank you so much for listening this was our first interview as i think we said a couple times there and it went really well as uh, as i'm sure you just heard so thank you again uh and just to say again, you can find James's work, James' work, at www.jameswgesso.com, J-E-S-S-O. And James W. Gesso is his Twitter and Instagram handle. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out his coaching that he does, his books. They were really good. We enjoyed them a lot. Uh, and I think like, again, if you work with him with integration coaching, I think you could get a lot out of it. So yeah, thank you so much.